word why. What a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. A key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Yost, it's uh, so nice to spend some time with you. There's a lot of, a lot of excitement around Williams Racing. I want to start with this question. You have a storied career in the sport. Is there more joy in the build now at this stage in your life, in your career, in building something than in even realizing sort of a gain in the standings? All my career was always, always a challenge in building something. I'm not, I'm not the guy who just, uh, you know, to, to run something at the stage as it is. So I always like to go somewhere where it's a big challenge, where you don't know if it's achievable or not, but, but give it the very best, try to build a good team and then achieve it. So that's why this job at Williams was the only job I would have taken. I was close to retirement, I just was one month before retirement. One month? One month before, with everything organized got all my toys, know what, knew what I wanted to do. And then when I got the call and started the discussion, I said, if I do one, I take one challenge in, as a job, then this is this. And so I tell did. me about that phone call. Like, what's the experience like for you? Are you, do you almost get like a little boy with excitement that you get to build something? Yeah, of course. It's, <laughs> it's like, if the phone call like this comes completely out of the blue, then, um, you know, Normally you would say, okay, give me a week, I come back to you, but it didn't take me a second it didn't to take say, you yeah, a second. we can talk, yeah. So, yeah, of course we can talk and then forget everything else, what was planned, what was scheduled, now let's talk. Is there a benefit because you've been building throughout your career that you were that close to retirement, that you bring <coughs> lessons with you that make you different in the role that you're in now with Williams? Yeah, I think that it's a couple of, of, of things in going in that direction. One is that for this job, I think I need all the experience I've gone through in automotive and in racing. I think the combination is very important. If you would just be in racing, you, it's 800 people. If you've just been in racing, I, don't, I think it's very difficult to restructure a team or a company with 800 people. If you've just been in automotive, you don't understand the special needs of racing. But that's what I thought to bring Williams back from the from from the very low, couldn't get anywhere, and to bring them back to to finally glory. It, I, I believe I have the experience and the various experiences to that I can give it a try and make it happen. So I didn't go and say I want this job and I have no idea how to do it. I went to this job and said, I think with all the experience I have, I, I would give that a chance. When did you know in your career that you had the sort of the mental makeup and skill set to be a team lead, to, to head in the role that you're in now? Was there a point in time where you kind of looked in the mirror and said, I think this is my path? 
No, not really. Not really. Many, many say, okay, what was your career plan? And I was always against career planning. You were against career planning. Yeah, I think if I would have done the career planning, I would never end it up here because it was so much out of reach. I think I would have been corporate and be a double starting or somewhere corporate. But my philosophy was always, I want to do a job I enjoy most. So it's, it's, the, it's the best job for me right now. And I want to do it the best possible because I really enjoy it. And I believe if you do this, then opportunities come up. And the opportunities that come up are not the opportunities you would have planned. And then you have to have the courage to take them. To take them. To take them and, and uh, say, get thrown in the water and take the challenge. And, and that happened a couple of times. You need also the flexibility then to change company, to change locations, to change where you live. But it was never a plan what is next. Always had to come doing a good job, being successful, and then the calls come. How has your relationship to competing in competition changed over time? So many in professional sports, there's an addiction almost <clears throat> to competition and winning, but it seems to change with experience and wisdom. How do you look at that? I don't think that it has changed. It hasn't changed no, for you. No. For me, as a kid, I had, uh, you know, when I raised started at 16, I was still going to school, and I had uh, like, uh, He's on my desk always with second is the first loser. And second is the, the first, first loser. loser. And that went through all my career. I, for me, not winning is physically painful. Physically painful. Physically painful. But it doesn't mean that you you can't. I think you have to be a good loser as well. You have to. And I think if, if, if not winning is physically painful, then you appreciate if somebody is better as well. And you don't get jealous, but you say, okay, he did a better job, so I have to do a better job. And then push harder. And not being, and seeing this competition not as an enemy or in the bad way. So if somebody does a better job with me, he's not a bad person, he's a better person than me. So I have to push harder and become better. I think that is what you learned over the years. I think I learned it very early when I raced Enduro and Motocross in our club that we had, we had 30 guys racing. So I was racing against my best friends. And if you race against your best friends, you're in competition, you fight like hell. Yeah, like brothers. Yeah, but yeah. then outside, afterwards, you go partying together and you're all weak, you are together at school, you, you work together, you are friends. But then it means when you are competing, then you are the fiercest competitor because the one you want to beat is your friend. You want to be better. Headroom is produced by Old Soul a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy, Matt, at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now, back to our guest. Now, you said, so losing, you endure physical, like a reaction, pain, yeah. when you lose. Like, where is that in your body? Is it, is it your head? Is it, and how long do you, does it take to recover from a loss? I think it's, it's, it's the whole body. It's a whole body experience. Just the whole body experience. Like, we win is also a whole body experience. And it is, I think, it, it's a couple of seconds. And the, in both ways, 
So it's a couple of seconds when you lose, you feel really that bad and then you look forward because otherwise you waste time. And the same if you win, it's a couple of seconds of this satisfaction, like an adrenaline shock, and that's it then. But that you can, with this, you can get addicted to these adrenaline shocks when, when you really win. Well, yeah, it's racing, right? And adrenaline is your best friend, is it not? Exactly. You live on <laughs> adrenaline. That's your coffee. Yeah, and when you see now going to Williams, where there's no chance to win right now, but this is a win is not necessarily being on the top of the podium. Yeah, That's I was going to ask objective. you, how do, how do you, how do you re sort of <laughs> quantify winning when you know right now where you are, that's not possible yeah. in the traditional. Yeah, I think you have to define winning as what means winning in the situation you are. So where we are now in to get championship points in a race is a win. That's a win. It's a win. So it's not just against the overall competition, but you have to define what you want to achieve. And if you achieve that, then it is a win. Uh, and that if that goes on and on, you, you might, might get better and better. If you achieve something, then you aim for the next. And then you aim for the next. And then finally, you will win. Tell me about relationship. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, right? Hopefully. Tell me about your relationship <laughs> with drivers. How has that evolved? Are the drivers of today different than they were when you first started? Mm, I don't think they are different. I think They're first not. of all, every driver is different. Like every no. person is different. And every driver needs a different treatment. You can't treat them all the same to get the best out of them. And I think it's not just with drivers, it's with everybody. Yeah. Can and you can you spot the talent? Um, like, would you say you have an eye for it, that I, you can I, see I would, it? I would, I would say so. And um, that because I was a racer myself, so I knew what it's needed. And... Um, when I worked at Porsche and we had the Super Cup Carrera Cup, we had VIP cars and we had every weekend, every race, two drivers in these VIP cars. So I had Eddie Irvine, I had Ralf Schumacher, um, I had most, every, so I went through about 30 drivers every year and they came in a team just seeing the weekend, I saw the approach, I saw how they compete, how they, how they handle the team and uh, and, and how they got into a race weekend. So I think that's very rare to have this with 30 drivers a year. Normally you have two drivers a year and they have it for a couple of years. So it's then I think it's very difficult to spot the differences. So what we see now, we founded the academy and we took Logan on board and put him in the first in his rookie in F2. He's third in the championship right now. And he has a chance to be in our car next year. That's a win. That's a, yeah. Right. That's, I mean, when exactly. you, with the development of a team, that's a win. Yeah. That's a win. And so you choose the right guy. You see, you believe in him. You talk to him, see him, believe in him and put him in Formula 2. Right away, he wins races in his first season and then to take him further. I think that is, for, for me, is a really high satisfaction to get young guys through and get competitive. And, um, you know, the age where I'm in, they're all like kids for me, <laughs> isn't it? It's... I think I create with them a father-son relationship. Father-son relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just always smooth, isn't it? Because like father-son relationship has some stress situations as well. So you have that too. But the driver needs to feel to feel at home, feel understood and and you have to take the pressure of them. It's not like if you if you crash you're out because then you put the pressure pressure on and most likely crash. But they are—they uh, have all—they are so different characters, and you have to treat them all differently. 
isn't that the power of racing? It really, I mean, the word family seems very serious. I mean, it, it is, it's the Williams racing family. And is that how you approach it from a leadership perspective that you think in that way? It's the father son relationship with a driver. It's the, you know, everybody in the, on the crew. Is that? Yeah. I think when you have to look at the whole company, when you look at Williams racing, we're 800 people. So there are jobs in production, in machining, and then you have this this race team where you've got um, 8,200, it depends on the size of the event. Uh, you go to races. And it's different when you are a race team and we have now 22 races this year, 24 next year. And it's always half a week to a week. So you are living like a family. I see these guys more than I see my family over the year. So it has to become a family. It has to be this trust-like in a family. And it has to become this relationship if you want to be successful. Of course, it's not in the whole company. You can't have that. Um, but you have this complete different You can strive for it. Yeah. yeah. So that means if you treat yourself like a, like, a, like, let's say like a family head in the race team, you have to have a similar position to everybody in the company because otherwise you build the silos and you split. So you need the trust, the same trust and the same respect from everybody. But you have to treat that as well, again, differently as you have to treat every driver differently. Yeah. So we started off our discussion talking about your love of building. So, so the builders that I've experienced are always building even with themselves and trying to find either identify a blind spot in their abilities and sort of continue to work on those different those elements. What what are you building when it comes to sort of you you as the sort of the, the, the figure, the ambassador, the lead, right, of Williams Racing? What is it at this stage of your career? It's sort of this next chapter, right? Because you almost were down the retirement path. Yeah. So is this a, a, a renewed opportunity to continue to grow yourself? Yeah, I think it's it's again you have to learn every single day and you have to improve. So. Um, you know, I don't have the time to read a lot, so I, lo I use Blinkist a lot to, to, to listen to a lot of books and to see different, different approaches for management, for how to build successful teams, talking also to the mental trainers of the drivers they have and, and try to, to improve myself every single day. Let's close with this. T tell me what, what racing means to you. Just as I mean, this has been your life. Like when you when you hear the cars on the track, I mean, what what does it mean to you? Is it a love I story? Yeah, I think it's a love story and it's ultimate passion. But I'm not that that you know. And I know there is more important stuff and more serious stuff around that as well. And I had through the career, I said, you know, I I went to university. The, the government funds the university. I'm learning what I'm learning, going engineering and learning. And do I really, the payback is having too fast driving around the racetrack as fast as possible. Is that giving anything back to, to the community and to society? Is that what, what is the sense of all this? And when I, when, when I looked into this, I said, I need to find the sense. And when I see the fans that, that, if they watch a Formula One race on the qualifying and sit in front of TV, they forget their problems. I think it brings them some enjoyment. They have something to talk about. 
and if some do not drink that much because they, they are, or do not smoke that much or, or just forget their problems and have some enjoyment for that, think that it's for me is uh, is for me the justification why I can do that because I have to give something back to society and maybe it sounds a bit stupid or 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 ridiculous but for me it is really like this if i can make people happy with that then it's worthwhile doing all right you got to give me a let's go racing i know that's your moniker with your team you got to give me a let's go <laughs> let's go racing <laughs> thank you very <laughs> thank much thank you thanks for taking the plunge into headroom where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives headroom is a production of rainlight and co-produced by our friends at old soul I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.